welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, the only show that takes a look at the obstacles and opportunities open to small to mid-sized enterprises that manufacture here in America. Brought to you by All Metals and Forge Group, with your hosts, Tim Grady and Lou Wise. Welcome, everyone, to Manufacturing Talk Radio, the voice of manufacturing globally. My name is Tim Grady. I'm here with my co-host, Lou Weiss, and we're going to be talking to a gentleman from MAPI, the Manufacturing Alliance for Productivity and Innovation today. We're going to be talking about the U.S. industrial outlook, but before we get to that, I'd like to talk to Lou and see how things are going in the news today. How are you doing, Lou? Doing well, doing well. Uh, To uh, switch to our postscript first uh, for last week's show, uh, we had uh, a, a gentleman by the name of uh, Jim Lawton, who was the chief product and marketing officer of Rethink Robotics, which is all about advanced robotics technology and the computer, the robot computer that they invented in his marketing, which is absolutely incredible. And we talked all about it, and it is a mobile, multi-purpose uh, robot that works in the shop alongside your other employees and they have all kinds of sensors and it does all kinds of incredible things um one is called sawyer and the other is called baxter and surprisingly enough it's it's cheaper to buy one of these robots than it is to buy an upgraded cadillac and it could make a huge difference uh, in your manufacturing uh, and productivity for your company um, you also don't have a lot of people calling robots calling in sick and going on vacation, and they work 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, one, the interesting point was that I think the payback is about. I think it was 15, a year to, to 18 months at the outside. Yeah, yeah about that, and uh, it's just incredible. And uh, interchangeable arms and interchangeable. Uh, uh, the tools that be, can be used to accomplish different tasks. So tune into last week's show about Rethink Robotics. And by the way, the address for them is re- RethinkRobotics.com. Uh, yeah, I think their health plan, I think their health plan, Lou, was a can of hydraulic fluid. <laughs> it must do wonders for the digestive system. Uh, in the news, hot stuff, hot stuff. Lockheed buys Sikorsky for $9 billion. Uh, it seemed like a marriage made in heaven. Uh, Lockheed wanted to get into the helicopter business, and uh, United Technology wanted to get out of it. So uh, it's, it's a marriage uh, that uh, will do wonders for both companies. And uh, take a look on it uh, uh, on the Internet, and uh, you'll see some very positive things that's going to come out of that for the aerospace industry. Uh, item two is the uh, Iranian nuclear deal, which uh, I'm not going to really talk a whole lot about it because that's kind of more in the politics area, and I don't want to talk politics because I might voice an opinion that might prove to be inadvisable <laughs> to put on the air. But that being said, uh, once the Iranian deal is uh, fully uh, put into place, uh, oil prices are probably going to go down. Uh, actually, this morning, the price of uh, crude was $50.78, down from $63 in May. And the word is that we may see $35 before the end of the year. Uh, I don't think that's going to do a whole lot of good for our economy. And perhaps... Uh, Mr. Mextroff could uh, give us some insight into that today in our show. So, Tim, back to you. Thanks, Lou. Um, we are talking with Dan Mextroff today. Dan is from the uh, what's known as MAPI, the Manufacturers Alliance for Productivity and Innovation. A very interesting organization puts out a lot of reports for uh, industry, and we're going to look at the U.S. industrial outlook uh, probably for the next 90 days or so. And uh, Dan is uh, Vice President and Chief Economist for MAPI Foundation and also for MAPI. Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. 
We've had Dan on before, and uh, Dan, we always love having uh, a forecaster on the show to find out what's going to happen, what we think is going to happen. Everyone's kind of waiting for the economy to pick up. Uh, how does your report see it? How does it look? Well, yes, I think it's going to pick up from the uh, first half. Um, as you know, the uh, you know, the manufacturing sector was virtually flat in the first half versus the um, the second half of, of 2014. The uh, production uh, uh, dropped in the first quarter primarily because of uh, of uh, the weather, severe weather, but also the West Coast port, West Coast port strike and a number of other shocks uh, that hit the economy, like uh, oil prices and um, uh, high value, the uh, appreciation of the dollar. So we we think the, uh, the the sector has absorbed that, and so the second half will be stronger. But because the first half was essentially flat on a quarter to quarter or on a semi-annual basis, uh, the the growth rate for the year as a whole is going to be lower than it was last year. So last year, manufacturing production grew at a 3.5% year-over-year rate, and uh, this year we're only looking for a 2.5%. And then uh, next year we do expect a pickup. You know, in in 2014 we're looking for 4% growth, and then 2017 decelerating a little bit to 3.1% growth. I think your two and a half percent is right on, Dan. Uh, we've heard everything for the second half of the year, pressing upwards into the fours that are somehow going to magically lift the economy into the threes. We don't believe it. <laughs> but I think mm-hmm. your two and a half is right on. Lou, would you agree? Absolutely, and uh, and that may even be a push. Uh, you know, if we get some surprises like some Iranian surprises or ISIS surprises. Uh, there's no telling what can happen. Uh, Dan, as you know, things affect our economy that we don't expect. Yeah, uh, and we certainly aren't going to get the the acceleration that we got last uh, uh, last year. But like in the, in the second quarter, we had a severe winter in 2014 too. So this wasn't. I mean, this is the second year in a row where we've had very severe winter. I mean, the, the statistics have seasonal adjustments, so they can adjust for normal winters. But when you have extremely severe winters like we've had the last two years, uh, it just can't, it overwhelms uh, that, uh, the, the seasonal adjustment. So the, um, you know, the outlook uh, last year, ex- coming off the severe winter, we, we really uh, exploded out. We, we had a, a made up everything in the, in the second quarter, plus we had a very strong rate of growth annual rate of growth in the, in the second quarter, third quarter, and then it decelerated a little bit in the fourth quarter. But, you know, the, it kind of jumped out of the box after a very weak first quarter. This year, that's not the case. Uh, this case, th- this year, manufacturing production actually fell in the first quarter when it didn't. It was, it uh, only slowed substantially in the last year. And then we've had a relatively modest, uh, only a 1.5% annual rate uh, pace of growth in the second quarter. And then uh, we're looking for, you know, maybe two and a half to three percent annual rates of growth in the third and fourth quarter. So because it's so weak uh, in the first half of the year, you really can't make that up in the second half because we we don't see anything that's going to cause this big surge like we had last year coming out of the severe winter. Yeah, I think that's uh, exactly right. Uh, uh, You'd have to be plugging the fives, Lou. Do you uh, see anything uh, coming on the horizon in regards to increase in defense spending in in view of a lot uh, of – no. (laughs) That was quick. I don't. (laughs) I think defense spending is going to be winding down. Uh, It's – there's no more stomach to to really grow defense, you know, to accelerate the spending at this point. There's so many other – Pressing needs like infrastructure, and that uh, no, I don't. I do not believe that uh, defense spending is going to accelerate. It's going to. It's not going to decline a lot, but it's going from this point. But it's going to slowly uh, decline in, in after inflation adjusted inflation adjusted terms. 
in in view of the fact that uh the I- Iranian deal has been uh signed which uh, I'm not I'm not sure how many people buy into it or believe it and then the ISIS issue and uh and there's things happening in China uh China building the uh these artificial islands out in the middle of the Pacific uh, I think 200 altogether, and I think one has been just recently completed with uh, armaments and all. Uh, I, I would think that the Defense Department would be kind of looking and saying, well, maybe we shouldn't be doing this. Maybe we ought to be careful about uh, decreasing further. I mean, there are those who believe that we're already way below where we should be. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that, Dan? Well, I'm, I'm not obviously I'm not a uh, defense expert, but my uh, what I can see is that uh, it may be that you know uh, that other countries, particularly Japan uh, and Vietnam and, and Korea and the countries in the region, have got more to worry about than we do. Uh, obviously, what China is doing is it's a it's a, a mineral grab basically is what it is. It's because of the exclusion zone around. Uh, territory that they have an island they can ex- they can have a 200 mile exclusion zone around it uh, they can claim the minerals under under you know out uh, from their coast from those coasts so it's really um, it's a mineral grab China is looking down the road uh, they they're heavy importers of of raw materials of minerals uh, to feed their you know their economy and uh, they're looking to secure uh, Minerals, so I think it's, it's more it's, it's provocative. Uh, it's it's inciting um, uh, problems in the, in the Southeast Asia, and they're making a lot of enemies. Uh, but I really think uh, the, the Asians, Korea, Japan, and other countries in that region, uh, they're the ones that need to respond um, more than we do. I mean, obviously we're going to be involved in that, but uh, it's really a, a and really, it should be led by by the countries that are directly involved with uh, you know, with the disputes with with China, and the U.S. is probably, I think, going to be more of a mediator than than a uh, um, you know, trying to mediate the uh, dispute rather than being proactive. Uh, but you know, China is going to uh, exert itself over in the future. It's the fast-growing economy. It's the you know one of the largest population centers or countries and large most Heavily populated country in the in the world, um, and uh, they're they're uh, you know, they're going to they are growing their defense spending rapidly, but from extremely low base. So they're not a you know they're not anywhere near as sophisticated as the U.S. and and the, and the and NATO. So okay. I, I just I don't think that's going to be uh, I don't think I, I don't think that's going to be a um, a reason to, uh, you know, accelerate. We're still going to grow. I mean, uh, uh, military spending is going to be is shifting away from troops to equipment and technology, and uh, so I think that's the way it's going to go. We're going to mm-hmm. we're going to spend more money on technology and uh, less on uh, boots on the ground. Uh, I just uh, completed a, a book uh, that I read. Uh, actually on my vacation several weeks ago. It was called The uh, 100-Year Marathon, The China Strategy. And it's the secret strategy that was created in 1949 and completion in 2049, and uh, which are coming to that close. And it's a very interesting and uh, in, some, in many ways a frightening book as to what's been going on in China that we never knew about and still don't know a lot about. And um, it it all uh, pieces together the things that they've been doing. It's all in the book, and it's all been part of their strategy of expansion. And, uh, you know, I, I read the book, and I said, I, we ought to vote for people who are for the defense spending, making sure <laughs> making sure we're up to speed. But uh, interesting book written by uh, Miles uh, Pillsbury, who's a 40-year veteran of the CIA, FBI, and the NSA. So I, I would recommend uh, a reading. But 
don't do it when you're at a beach. It's supposed to be relaxing. There were two nights I didn't sleep. Well, uh, first of all, you have to keep in mind the Chinese have got a lot to lose by provocation. I mean, in the past, as you say, back in the the 50s, they were in a closed economy. They 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 effectively ruined their their economy. They were they, they had spent you know the the communists had destroyed the the market system and they uh, their growth was meager and their standard of living was extremely low. It's only when they adopted uh, a market-based economy, a more capitalist-type system, that they started really to grow and accelerate. And so now China is very integrated with the rest of the world. Uh, they're our largest supplier, you might say. We import. Uh, they're our largest uh, importing country, country that we import from. So we've integrated their products into our supply chain. The Europeans have done the same thing. Uh, they're relying upon us for high-technology goods that they don't produce. So while there may be provocations, they really have a, got a lot to lose uh, if they if they you know, create an adverse situation that the U.S. and Europe would retaliate uh, economically. Um, not even not even they've also got a, a lot to they got they have to grow to keep their population satisfied and and I don't think they're you know I know they're a, a communist system they're like a monarchy in a, in a sense of decision making but uh, they've got to be looking over their shoulders at the uh, at, at the population of uh, you know diverse groups that are real more are more interested in increasing their standard of living than than um, becoming uh you know a hegemon for for the world mhm mhm very true uh, Dan, let's get to this. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm sorry we didn't give you an opportunity to explain to our listeners. I'd like to do that now. The U.S. industrial outlook. When does it come out? What does it cover? Uh, it's a report I do every quarter, every three months, and it covers uh, like a, it's a cyclical analysis of 27 industries, and I provide forecasts of 24 of those industries. Um, and it's it's uh, basically the main manufacturing. Uh, industries plus a few other like some construction and um, oil and gas drilling. So we, it's it's a kind of a snapshot of the cycle where each of those industries are in a in the uh, business cycle. So whether they're accelerating, they're accelerating, uh, or they're accelerating growth, decelerating growth, accelerating decline, decelerating decline. The whole business cycle. Of course, most of the sectors are now on the on the growth side, um, decelerating growth. But, um, you know, there are some industries that are still in recession, and there's some industries that are just coming, kind of coming out of a cycle again. Uh, so this, it, the, uh, the report kind of gives you a snapshot view of where various industries are in the cycle, and, and then we talk about the, the forecast for uh, this year and next and in 2017. Okay. Now, what if curious that you say some industries are still in recession? What would they be? Well, right now, um, some of the weakest uh, uh, sectors would be uh, well, textile mill products, which are like rugs and carpets, things that go into housing. The, the problem, main problem with textiles, is, as you know, is that it's it's almost disappeared in the United States. Um, a lot of import competition. And uh, the vast bulk of the, of the uh, goods consumed in those, that, that sector, that industry, is basically imported. So there's very little manufacturing left, uh, domestic manufacturing left. So um, that's mainly affected by imports. Um, this year, there was a uh, uh, we expect a decline in agricultural equipment uh, production. Uh, we also expect a decline in uh, because of low uh, commodity prices uh, and falling uh, farm income. Uh, we also expect mining and drilling equipment production to decline. For, you know, for agricultural equipment, we expect it to decline in 10% this year. That's in physical volume. Uh, it's 13% decline in, um, in mining and drilling equipment this year and an 18% decline next year. So it's a major correction to obviously to low oil and gas, natural gas prices, and com- falling commodity prices uh, in terms of metals. Um, 
the another area where we're seeing real uh, weakness and decline is in some of the uh, the uh, material sides of manufacturing. So paper, uh, paper production will fall one percent this year. Uh, it fell two percent last year. Uh, steel, uh, iron and steel is down nine percent production down nine percent this year. And, and that's again that's an import situation. There's a surge of imports of steel given the global overcapacity, particularly in China, uh, for steel uh, steel mills and um, the U.S. You know, uh, we're talking about relatively good, um, a, mo a modest rate of growth in manufacturing, but that's better than most other countries of the world. You know, uh, in Japan, and we're better, we're growing faster than Japan and Europe, uh, and uh, with all the excess capacity, it's attracting uh, iron and steel imports into the United States. Um, and also uh, ag chemicals, uh, uh, fertilizers, it follow, basically follows the uh, ag equipment, the decline in commodity prices and lower farm income. We only see a 1% decline in uh, agricultural chemicals this year. But So those are a few areas where, we're, um, where we see it. If, if we get into more details and in terms of um, uh, you know, industries, for example, in construction, construction, non-residential construction is relatively good if you would take out the, um, if you take out uh, electric utilities uh, and uh, which is, is under what's called power and communications uh, communications construction. Um, so th those two sectors are pulling down the growth rate, substantially pulling down the growth rate in non-residential construction. But if you look at just industrial construction or manufacturing construction or and uh, commercial construction and even other institutional type construction, it's probably strong. Uh, that manufacturing construction will be, you know, double digits, uh, 20, uh, 25% on that range, 28% this year, um, mainly driven by uh, or driven by the areas where there's where, where there's uh, capacity constraints, uh, food, um, particularly in in, uh, in the um, chemicals area, uh, that's driven a lot by the um, uh, the increase in, in uh, new construction for ethylene plants to take advantage of low natural gas prices. Um, so there's you know, there's uh, it's it's spotty. It depends on on what industry you're talking about as to what the outlook is. I think we should talk about aerospace. <laughs> okay. Well, aerospace is uh, is one of those industries that should have been growing, or should be growing extremely rapidly. Um, as you know, Boeing has got five-year backlogs on on the, uh, some, many other products. Uh, the problem has been that they've had these uh, parts failures or, or uh, system failures, and they've Basically, I had to correct, go back and correct uh, the uh, the new, you know, the uh, systems and the in the new products. But they are starting to ship uh, now new products. You know, the 787, their their freight new freighter, and some other products. Um, it's hurt the the uh, you know, an order in the airlines in, or the aerospace industry is is just it's a basically place in the production schedule. It's it's a they can always cancel or they can always postpone taking delivery. So uh, a lot of the delivery is based upon the current state of the economy. And as you know, um, as I mentioned before, the U.S. is, is the best-looking horse in the glue factory. It's, you know, things are not <laughs> so good around the world. Um, so a lot, and, and a lot of the aerospace orders are from other countries. Uh, the U.S. airlines are... They have a replacement cycle. They are replacing equipment, but most of the demand uh, for aerospace products are uh, in other countries that um, where their you know their uh, travel and freight activities are accelerating, and, and their the new products, the new Boeing products particularly, uh, have have um, substantial economic uh, advantages in terms of lower fuel use. Than the, than the old products. For that reason, it's kind of accelerating the depreciation or the replacement. So, uh, over, take overall aerospace uh, production. Over, overall aerospace production, which includes defense, 
and commercial. Uh, it was up 2% in 2014, which is production, physical volume was up 2%. We're looking for 3% growth this year, which is just a slight acceleration. Um, so it's kind of at a moderate rate, but we do expect it to accelerate. We're looking for 8% growth in 2016 and 7% growth in 2017. And it could maintain that high single-digit rate for several more years after that uh, because there's such a long backlog of products. And we do expect the economy to accelerate, not not into a, any kind of a boom, but move from a modest growth rate to a moderate growth rate. And that will that will cause more spending on, uh, on plant and equipment, particularly equipment. Uh, Dan, I, I haven't been keeping up with the, the competition between Airbus and uh, Boeing. Uh, is my sense of it that Boeing is uh, leading the pack? I think they're doing a little bit better, uh, yes. Um, they, they've got the new products that uh, have been well-received. Um, so they... Uh, and they uh, and uh, so they have they have uh, up until recently they had a kind of advantage with the kind of a, the uh, declining value of the dollar. But as you know, in the last mm. three or four or five months, the dollar has uh, substantially appreciated, uh, almost you know very very quickly at a very short period of time. So they've lost somewhat some of that advantage. The um, uh, the the big uh, well, I should say. It does have an effect, but for the most part, uh, Boeing deals in dollars. They they sell they sell aircraft in dollars, <laughs> so um, right. it, they don't have the currency translation effect that uh, other industries have. Uh, but yeah, I think Boeing is doing is doing much better, and um, they may be winning a little bit, but you know, Air, the Airbus is not going to disappear anytime soon. That's for sure. This is going to be a formal competitor longer term mm-hmm. like it is like it has been um, the Europeans have too much to, at stake to let Airbus falter so uh, it will be a major competitor and and it'll be a big and then you got the other industries like uh, Brazil uh, and in uh, Canada with um, you know, medium-sized jets that they that they may be uh, eyeing the, the large jet market you know they're going to be expanding a and China is, wants to build up itself an aerospace industry. So it's it's uh, you know aerospace was what steel was along about 50 years ago, where right. if you had a steel, it was like a badge of achievement. Uh, so the same thing as, as applies to aerospace. It's if you can develop a domestic aerospace industry, it's it's a way of driving technology, driving innovation in your economy. And so it's. Uh, other countries are going to target aerospace as much as they can. Uh, you brought up a moment ago uh, Brazil. I'd like to go into that a little deeper. Um, can you speak on what's going on down there the, economically? Yeah, the, the socialists ran the economy into the ground. <laughs> that's basically what happened. doesn't take a genius I mean, on this one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it it was complete... Um, you know, the, the uh, Brazil looked like it's 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 it has this history of uh, of going uh, you know socialist and capitalist and socialist and capitalist and so um, the socialist uh, government came in uh, basically on the promise of of um, more social programs you know, to give you know, to uh, uh, to improve the situation of the poor um, but but what they did uh, is they mis misread this, the problem in, in Brazil. So th- they viewed the problem in Brazil as being lack of demand. And so uh, and th- so they took advantage of that and they think, okay, well, how, how can I help uh, the uh, economy and help ourselves at the same time? So what they did was they increased public sector wages, increased the, the minimum wage, raised taxes on business, um, uh, and then when they found that was slowing the economy, they they um, put controls on on trade so that you have to you have to have a um, export and import license, uh, an imp- a license to imp- to um, for Brazilian companies to import and to to buy products from abroad, so they uh, to import products into into Brazil. 
so they they want they're trying to manipulate a trade surplus but they they uh, they this policy of stimulating demand they were successful they were able to stimulate demand for consumer goods um employment dropped I mean, the unemployment rate dropped um and uh the wage pressure started to build and they and the, the uh population for a while felt you know they they had a substantial improvement in and they're staying a living, but all they were doing was stoking uh, inflation because the supply side was, would not respond to the, the, the increased demand. So it, with, by, because of the heavy regulation uh, of the economy, the, the uh, inability to import components to go into the, to, to products, the um, extremely high taxes, that, uh, that the government imposed upon them to pay for the social program, the high labor cost uh, that, uh, that was not offset by productivity increases because business wasn't didn't wasn't able to buy or or to, uh, to buy capital equipment or to or um, import capital equipment or to produce it domestically because there just wasn't enough reason uh, the profits were so low, so there was a mismatch. They accelerated demand without. The domestic supply increasing, and the result was was extremely high inflation rate. So Brazil has one of the highest inflation rates in the world right now. And so then there's, they uh, manipulated their central banks to keep the central bank pumping out money. Which uh, now the central bank they has, because of because of that they lost the confidence of the international uh, um, credit system. So um, the the uh, the international investors basically um, uh, were going to drive up, sort of drove, drove up interest rates for Brazilian bonds. So they were forced to bring in a, a um, conservative finance minister who uh, basically then re- reestablished uh, independence of the central bank, which the central bank then had to had to um, increase interest rates. So Brazil has one of the highest interest rates in the world as a result. So high interest rates. Uh, Low productivity, high high, high relative wages, um, and as a result of this, now the economy is uh, declining. And then they lost, then they lost their their big driver, which is commodity prices. So Brazil very heavy in natural resource exports. So oil prices fell, uh, steel or uh, iron ore prices fell, copper, you know all the the metals prices dropped, which was their. Uh, you know, the main revenue or main source of uh, foreign revenue, foreign currency. So as a, as a result, uh, they, they lost their, their main kind of demand, external demand driver, and their internal demand is, uh, is uh, being – the purchasing power of, of the households are being eroded by extremely high inflation and high interest rates. Business Another- has no incentive to invest. Another thing that they were doing, uh, Dan, uh, we opened up a, a sales operation for our uh, forge uh, company to sell forge down into into Brazil. And just about when we did that, they raised uh, the duty on uh, our products 30 40 percent to make sure that uh, local uh, manufacturers were, were protected. But what the local manufacturers did was they raised their price to just go underneath the import price with duty, trying mm-hmm. to capitalize on additional profits, which further drove demand down because nobody was going to buy the goods at the higher prices. And they were equal to, in many cases, to the imported prices, so there was no benefit. So that also didn't help the demand track uh, either. No, and what it's done is that it's, the, the industries that are there are protected, and so they're therefore they're not uh, they have no reason to increase productivity, no reason to be basically internationally competitive. Uh, so right. it's, uh, you might want to compare it to to uh, Mexico. Mexico is the opposite. Mexico uh, floats their currency. They don't have fixed exchange rates. They have uh, they have always been. You know, and they've been fighting China for market share, for market share for years. So the industries in Mexico are, uh, you know, nimble. They, they respond to market pressures. They um, 
they're competitive. I mean, they have uh, they try to increase productivity, and they they're internationally competitive. Just the opposite is in Brazil. Uh, Brazil has protected its industries. It's not invested. Their, their productivity is low, um, and they're not internationally competitive. And so that just means they need more protection. And so it's a vicious circle that that the socialist you know the socialist type system. Um, uh, promulgates or, or uh, you know, uh, allows to continue. In addition, you got the, the they, uh, they've uh, messed up their oil industry, you know, the Petrobras, and, and they've um, stuck, stuffed it with cronies. And uh, it's a jobs program. And they, the oil drill, the oil, the uh, national oil country, a company, uh, didn't make investments in the oil fields, so their oil production is declining. Uh, they had other scandals, uh, political type scandals, uh, corruption, um, and you know. There's the so word. In, in bribery and corruption. This the whole crony economy creates this cor- this corrosive effect of, of uh, corruption and bribery. You, you see it. You, you see it um, whenever you have a situation where uh, uh, the economy is not market based. It becomes less, the further it gets away from market-based forces, the, the more likely you're going to get um, rent-seeking people trying to maintain positions uh, through, you know, bribery and, and et cetera, and, and clearly, political clearly. trying to get political favor, political favor, bribery. That's all runs with a um, an economy that's not market-based. Well, we're going to be back uh, with Dan Nextroth here from the uh, uh, NAPI, which is the Manufacturers Alliance for Productivity and Innovation, uh, after a quick commercial break and a word from our sponsor. Manufacturing Talk Radio will be right back. How do you keep your business humming? Where do you go when you're looking for quality suppliers of new equipment, components, MRO supplies, repair services, or even raw materials? 30 years ago, you would have turned to the Thomas Register. Today, those big green books are better than ever at thomasnet.com, industry's leading platform for product sourcing and supplier discovery. You can easily find that local machine shop, national distributor, OEM, or any supplier having the right quality certification. Fast and free. You can even get to specific products, components, or downloadable 3D CAD drawings simply by entering specifications or part numbers. There's a reason thomasnet.com has become the go-to supplier discovery tool for procurement professionals and engineers. There's simply no other resource like it, and it's all free. Go to thomasnet.com today and see how top-notch supplier discovery doesn't have to put a dent into your bottom line. American Crane and Equipment Corporation in Douglasville, Pennsylvania is a leader in specialized cranes, hoists, and material handling equipment for industries including aerospace, nuclear, oil and gas, transit, construction, and waste handling. Call 877-877-6778 or visit AmericanCrane.com. That's AmericanCrane.com or 877-877-6778. All Metals and Forge Group is an ISO 9001 AS and EN 9100 manufacturer of open die forgings and seamless rolled rings in alloy, carbon, stainless and tool steels, aluminum, copper, titanium, and nickel alloys. Visit us at steelforge.com or call 800-600-9290. Welcome back to Manufacturing Talk Radio. Welcome back, everyone, to Manufacturing Talk Radio. We're speaking with Dan Nextroth, who is Vice President and Chief Economist for the MAPI Foundation, the research affiliate of the Manufacturers Alliance for Productivity and Innovation. And Dan is talking about his U.S. Industrial Outlook Report that he puts out quarterly, and we've been talking about some of the segments within it. Uh, Dan, since our sponsor, All Metals and Forge Group, is in the metals industry, how does the metals industry look for the balance of 2015 going into 2016? Oh, you mean in terms of primary metals or in fabricated metals? Well, let's talk about primary metals. Let's talk about both. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mentioned primary metals. Uh, the um, 
the steel industry is uh, is going to decline this year pretty substantially. So uh, we're looking for a 9% decline in steel production uh, in 2015, and then a rebound of 4% growth in 2016 and 5% growth in 2017. The the main reason for the decline this year is is trade, uh, and you know there are the the uh, the other markets are uh, are uh, moderate, but the, the which really driving it down is the trade situation, uh, the surge in imports. For the uh, aluminum industry, no no gain in production this year, and 3% gain next year, and 5% gain in uh, in 2017. Um, in terms of uh, fabricated metals, uh, fabricated metal products, um, the uh, it's made up of, of many different uh, industries. So forging and stampings actually uh, should do fairly well this year, although it's slower growth than it was in 2014. So we're looking for 6% growth in, in store forging and stamping production this year and 2% growth in 2016, 2% growth in 2017. And that's basically driven by the strong um, machinery production in general, uh, except for the ag machinery and the mining and drilling machinery. Um, in terms of uh, other industries, so um, the, the hand tools or, or the power tools uh, and hand tools um, in cutlery, that's down 7% this year. We expect uh, about 1% growth next year, 2% growth in 2017. Architectural and structural metals um, is is doing fairly is very doing very well. So I mentioned before, there's a, a kind of a, a rebound, a strong rebound in commercial and industrial construction, uh, which is uh, and also the housing industry. Uh, housing starts uh, are up substantially this year, or substantially in terms of percentage change. So we're looking for housing starts to increase 10%. 2015, 19% in 2016, and 12% in 2017. So that's, that helps um, this architectural and, and structural metals. Uh, but particularly, it's driven by non-risk construction, non-risk buildings construction. Uh, hardware, very little, very slow growth uh, in the outlook. You know, one percent, one to one and a half percent growth uh, each of the next three years. Um, Spring and wire products uh, should be up about 6% this year. Uh, it was up 9.5% last year. Uh, I think it's driven by automotive uh, and uh, building supplies. So, uh, you know, uh, it goes into the construction uh, sector and the automotive sector. Uh, and then we're looking for 2% growth in 2016 and 17 for uh, spring and wire products. Uh, coating and dra uh, graving and heat treating, uh, virtually no growth this year, and 1.5% uh, growth in 2016 and 17. Um, that's, those are the major components of uh, fabricated metal products. So overall, fabricated metal products are going to be up 3% this year, which is a little slower than the 4% growth last year. And then we're looking for 3% next year and about three, a little bit, about 2.5% growth in 2017. Uh, Dan, just so that our listeners know, because you put this report together quarterly, is this released through MAPI to the general public or to the uh, industry in general? Yes, it's on our website, uh, mapi.net backslash research. So, or if you go in the website, mapi.net, you look for the research tab, and that's, that's where you'll find all our economic publications and forecasts. So we have um, paper, you know, or um, uh, print publications, but we also do webinars and we do uh, PowerPoint with audio uh, videos that, that's uh, available through the website. Yes, I would certainly encourage any of our listeners who are interested in this to go to uh, napi.net. A lot of great information that the organization puts out. Uh, Lou, you had a, a comment? Yeah. Uh Dan, in your uh, report, uh, you're showing the oil and gas declines this year, 13%, and uh, another additional 18% next year. Um, mm -hmm. And this all is uh, uh, naturally is going to affect our, our economy. Uh, and then you see a turnaround in 17 of a 12% increase. 
Does this uh, Iranian deal uh, have any impact on that uh, that you see? And I, and I would, I'll presume that it's probably a negative impact. You want to throw yeah, in your comments a, on that? Um, it's kind of strange. You have to look at it two ways as to uh, what's the effect on the U.S. economy in general, a macro effect, and then what's the effect on manufacturing. So, you know, in general, lower oil prices, lower natural gas prices are good for the economy. I mean, in fact, what you're doing is you're shifting out the supply curve. So at every price, there's more production. And even though that's cause uh, causes deflation or falling prices, uh, you know, it's generally good for the economy because it's because it's because of technological change here for the most part. So the, which caused the, the uh, drop in oil prices and natural gas prices is the fact that uh, there's, there's been a technological advance in, in drilling. So you have fracking and you have horizontal drilling. Uh, they really started in about 2008 and accelerated from there. It's turned around domestic production of oil and gas, natural gas. I mean, oil was declining. Oil, gas, oil and gas production was declining for many, many, you know, for decades, particularly uh, oil. Um, because, and and then it, it, all of a sudden, this new technology has turned it around. And uh, since 2008, uh, oil production has increased 4.6 million barrels a day. Uh, it's a, it, you know, when people were talking about us being totally dependent on oil in, in a couple decades, now it looks like by the end of the decade, we may be totally self-sufficient. So it's, a, it's really a miracle. And the consumers benefit from that because everybody's paying lower oil prices. We, and we drive our cars, it's less expensive. You you buy uh the heat our homes with our natural gas or oil, uh fuel oil, it's it's less. It's all the industries that, that feed in that use uh the feed stocks or oil and natural gas as as inputs uh, are benefiting. So you'll you see a um uh in terms of uh the industries that were that that consume oil so consumers, I mentioned before, but also the fuel users like the transportation sector. So whether it's, it's uh, railroads, whether it's aerospace or shipping, uh, trucks, um, ships, everything, everybody that uses oil is going to benefit from low oil prices. You also have the feedstock users. So uh, some industries use, particularly in manufacturing, use natural gas. Uh, they, they use very very little oil is used in manufacturing, extremely small amount, which really used is natural gas. Uh, so the organic chemicals uh, were uh, they create ethylene and use the products into into organic chemicals. They're going to benefit because the feedstock cost were were there uh, is, is gone down substantially. Agricultural chemicals, particularly nitrogen chemicals, I mean the, it's a feedstock into that process, and so they benefit. Uh, become more um, competitive internationally. We have this huge advantage internationally. It's not just and not just falling prices, but already low prices relative to the rest of the world, and it's falling. Uh, and then plastics and resins, again, or uh, natural gas is a feedstock. And then there are some industries that uh, in manufacturing that use heat uh, that benefit from lower heat costs. So paper, metals, cement and electric utilities. They all benefit from uh, the lower cost of heat. So there's a, a lot of industries that, and sectors that benefit from low gas prices. So the, kind of the macro, the net macro effect is positive. Um, but it turns out that there's some industries that are hurt. So obviously the oil producers are hurt. And the oil producers buy drilling equipment. And the, the whole oil country goods supply chain has been hurt by this drop in oil prices, um, and then some ma and major oil producers, uh, exporters, I should say, like Venezuela, Russia, both in re major recessions right now. Kuwait, Saudis, Iran—they're in recessions. I mean, Iran didn't negotiate this deal because things are great in Iran. They did because the, their population's revolting against poor economic performance. So, you know, it, it, oil, low oil prices do hurt certain segments. In general, it seems that in manufacturing, uh, what's happened is that the, the consumers benefited from low oil prices, and they did spend 
they had a one-time positive shock in the fourth quarter of last year, and they did accelerate spending in the fourth quarter, but they, it didn't continue. So it looks like consumers have primarily used the money to uh, to pay down debt um, and reliquify themselves. So we didn't get a big surge in spending uh, because of low uh, from consumers uh, on based on lower oil prices or lower natural or natural gas and uh, gasoline prices. So it looks like the net effect on manufacturing has actually been negative. But for the economy as a whole. It is a positive, a net positive effect. Well, so, let me uh, ask manufacturing is hurt more by the drop in production, you know, dry, uh, production of the equipment and oil country supply chain, than it is helped by low, uh, low oil price, low oil and natural gas prices as a heat user or as a feedstock user. Let me ask you this: uh, going back to the oil and gas, the field machinery uh, equipment, if they're if we're pumping out more fuel and more gas uh, than we ever have and may become self-sufficient, don't we need replacement on equipment and wear and tear and maintenance? Uh, yeah, where you need more storage facilities, you need um, well, sto- more pipeline right. capacity. So I mean, yes, you do. The you the you're you're correct that the volume, although the price has gone down, the volume has gone up, uh, and so uh, you need facilities to handle that additional volume. But remember, uh, for the most part, uh, we're just replacing imports. That is, the U.S. Mm. is still a net importer right now. Right, right now, we well, give you a perspective. In 2007, the U.S. had a net imports of 12 million barrels a day. That was our net imports. That's when people were projecting that uh, we, would be totally, uh, we would be totally dependent upon foreign oil. Uh, then by uh, this year, 2015, we're a net importer of 4 million barrels a day. So we we went from importing 12 million barrels a day to 4 million barrels a day. Um, so, you know, the, we've substantially reduced our imports, but we still are a net importer. And what which we're doing by increasing domestic production, we're just replaced, for the most part, replacing uh, imports with domestic production. Mm-hmm. The consumption of oil uh, overall is not increasing. In fact, oil consumption has been declining because it's been relatively high priced for what you know, five, six years. Um, right. Until we, consumers have, have, um, or users have substituted away from, from oil to natural gas, uh, and then also we have got this whole environmental issue and conservation where um, the economies become much more efficient use of ener- user of energy. We don't need as much energy to produce a dollar of GDP as we did in the past, and that, that's actually you know, pretty strong downward pressure uh, on uh, uh, on, the, on the use of the use of oil. As uh, is the consumers just consumers in terms of people and also industrial users and utilities are using much less energy to produce uh, you know output than they have in the past. So, is it, so what I'm saying is that the yes, it's true that you need more infrastructure, but when you're replacing when you're replacing domestic for imports, it's um, you know the total the total volume that you're moving has actually been declining, and, mm-hmm. and you you need to replace the infrastructure, obviously. But um, I think the buildup in the whole oil country supply chain was was really more about how do you get the production, which was in in, Nor- in uh, North Dakota and you know in some of these in, in uh, Texas and other places where uh, some the outer parts of Texas and the, the major fields, the shale fields, were not um, were not equipped with the pipelines that they needed to to move that production into the major distribution lines, uh, but that. So it was uh, the drilling equipment, the, you know, the, the pipe to, to drill, and then also the lines to move the, the oil to the major uh, arteries to, to get it into the system. But um, that is slowed down, obviously. And, and it, the lower oil prices go, or with the, the longer they stay below $50 a barrel, um, the, the faster uh, the infrastructure is going to collapse. Uh, it's going to implode on itself because it doesn't seem that 
the, the kind of the estimates I see is that you need $50 a barrel for uh, unconventional shale oil to be competitive, to be break even. That's kind of the break even point. So when it goes up to the $60 range, then you know you you get more production. But uh, when it drops down to 40, uh, you're not. You're, it's going to start continue to um, uh, to implode. And the the dollar uh, price today was 50.87 just prior to showtime today. Yeah, I mean there's uh, there there's other obviously there's some fields that are going to be competitive at low prices. Uh, some of the unconventional fields are competitive, but uh, it may be some um, some producers uh, have are better at the technology than others, and maybe they can be a little bit more um, competitive at 50. But you know that seems to be what the industry is estimating, or what experts I've talked to seem to think that is the break-even point for for shale. Uh, but you know, if you can find a big field that's that's unconventional, that's not unconventional, a regular field, I mean, there's still discoveries out there that could be produced at less than fifty dollars. But um, I think you're, what you're seeing is that uh, it looked like things were stabilizing. You know, the recount was stabilizing when it got above fifty, mm-hmm. uh, and if it drops, if this additional Iranian production would come on stream. Um, it may depress prices. Uh, it would probably depress prices further, but it, I don't think it would be a major shock because that oil is, is moving anyway. It's been going through the black market. Uh, it's being, you know, oil is, is very fungible. It's it trades around the world. Uh, so uh, there will be additional production that wouldn't have occurred that, you know, that they can sell now, but, um, you know, I don't think it's going to cause a collapse of oil because uh, it's all well, they, prices ready to yeah, They also uh, claim that it's going to take almost a year for Iran to get fully up to speed, so it'll be a gradual mm-hmm. feed into the market. Uh, right. And you're you're right. I, I agree with you. It probably won't you be know, there's, a there's major shock. Just here, I remember there's the point I wanted to make is there's two sides of the market. There's the demand side, or there, and there's the supply side. And um, the lower the prices get, the less likely producers are to drill more for more oil. And, and there's a fairly high depletion rate, when you, particularly when you do deal in the uh, shale fields. Those wells don't last nearly as long as the uh, conventional uh, wells do. Mm-hmm. They need to be, you know, they, they play out very fairly quickly. And so you could see if oil prices stay below 50 for a long period of time, uh, for years, then then you would see supply actually start shrinking. And all we need is, a, all we need is another kind of rebound. If we're, if we're right in that there's a general global rebound next year and the year after, um, I'm not calling for a boom by any means, but mm-hmm. going from moderate, uh, that will soak up some demand or will boost demand a little bit, and particularly in oh, not in other countries. Ian, we want to we want to thank you for joining us here on Manufacturing Talk Radio. We encourage everyone to go to mapai.net to take a look at this U.S. industrial outlook. Uh, Dan, enjoyed having you on the show again. Thank you for joining us. Okay, bye. And Lou, uh, what have we got coming up here? Uh, next week we are going to have uh, green manufacturing. Uh, we are going to be talking about the uh, environmental responsibility and financial costs that it takes to become uh, a successful green manufacturer. Uh, we're going to be talking about cleaner production processes and more efficient uh, resource management. Uh, we will be looking at uh, how that's going to affect the bottom line and uh, the cost to do so may not be as big a deal as those who are not fully uh, aware of it as to what the cost will be to uh, generate that extra profit for their organizations. So we're looking forward to uh, having several guests on regarding uh, green manufacturing. I look forward to uh, next next week. Tim? Yeah, it should be a very interesting show. Uh, I'm always uh, fascinated by uh, green manufacturing to see the, the advances that have been made and there was always a lot of talk and it would oh, it cost you more than you could probably sell the product for. Don't think that's true anymore and we'll hear more about that next week. 
Well, that's like uh, our robot show last week, uh, Rethink Robotics, uh, in that uh, for $30,000 you can have a whiz-bang computer that uh, um, you'll see a return on your investment in less than a year. Uh, So the technology is driving profits. Yeah, clearly, amazing stuff. And that kind of wraps us up today for Manufacturing Talk Radio. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.